the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. Alex Marlowe and I had a disagreement. We both see what's happening with the media and how they're treating Joe Biden, but we disagree on why they're doing it this way in a pretty dramatic way. So it was a great first hour because I laid out my case and then we opened up the phones uh, to see uh, how you see what they're doing right now. But I present my argument as to what they're doing to Joe Biden, why they're doing it in this opening segment here. Enjoy. interesting thing of the day we are seeing the beginnings of what i believe is the turn from the media against joe biden with this latest report that joe biden is a real jerk behind closed doors he's a yeller they say a yeller and a screamer he's a mean guy now my first instinct is this is no surprise at all a lot of high-powered people are jerks could be a lot of stress on the job. There's a high stakeness to the job. As president of the United States, you can't have people screwing up when the fate of the world rests on decisions that you make, right? I got no patience for this dumb mistake you made, you idiot. I get that. Maybe you need to be that way to get to the top. Maybe the only way to become president is to be a jerk. I don't know. I've never been president. I don't know what it takes. Have you ever had a yeller boss? I've never had a yelling boss. I've had, ye- I've had yelling coaches. But that's different, I think, right? I don't know. So maybe this is good. Maybe, uh, maybe it, it's good that we have a president who's a yeller and a screamer. Maybe this is what you need. Maybe it humanizes them. But then I also remember reading about George H.W. Bush. Kate Brower, she wrote a bunch of books about the White House. She wrote books about the First Ladies and a book about life in the White House. And she wrote a book called First in Line, Presidents, Vice Presidents, and the Pursuit of Power. And she wrote a lot about H.W. Bush and uh, at the end of his life. And she wrote one article at his funeral when he passed away in 2018 that former White House staff of H.W. Bush didn't just go to the funeral they were reserved seats in the front rows. So the White House staff was sitting in front of defense secretaries and and high-level cabinet members at HW's funeral. In interviews with more than 50 former resident staffers for my book about the dedicated permanent White House staff who stay on from one administration to the next, often for for more than 30 years, every single one of them said George H.W. and Barbara were their favorite president and first lady to serve. Chris Emery, he was the White House usher, so that's the guy in charge of the White House staff. His dad passed away on Thanksgiving, and he told his boss, and 30 minutes later, he got a call from Camp David. This is on Thanksgiving. He picks up the phone, he says, stand by for the president. And then H.W. Bush picks up and offers condolences and then hands the phone over to Barbara, and Barbara's talking, it was at the president of the United States. One time, Barbara went into the White House kitchen area or something, and uh, she said, hey, what are you guys doing? 
and the White House staff is like, oh, your grandkids are playing by the pool, and they asked for some food. Your, your grandkids ordered food by the pool. And she said, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> and she told the grandkids, if you want your food, you come inside, you make it yourself. These aren't just slaves. On the Bush's last day, Barbara wrote in her diary, the worst will be saying goodbye to the staff today. So they're very, very close to the White House staff. I'll give you one more story. This one is a story about Reagan. Uh, so H.W. Bush said his favorite memory as vice president was when he went to go visit Reagan in the hospital after getting shot. And H.W. says when he first walked in the room, he didn't, he didn't see Ron. I don't know what he called him. I don't know if he called him Ron or whatever. Hey, Ron, where, where, where's Ron? And Reagan's like, I'm over here. And Reagan was on his knees on the hospital floor. Right, so imagine, like you're visiting a guy who just got shot at the hospital, and he's, he's, he's not in the bed. He's on the floor. What are you doing on the floor? Are you okay? Turns out old Ron spilled a glass of water, and he didn't want the nurses to get in trouble. So he was on the ground himself, wiping up the mess. And H.W. said that that was so typically thoughtful of Ronald Reagan. So that's those men. Now, I'm not saying they never lost their temper. Goodness. But that's their, that's their general state of being. And you compare that to the Clintons. <laughs> this is from MSNBC years ago. Hillary Clinton's prominent role in her husband's White House caused friction with the president's staff, which occasionally erupted in her anger. Both Clinton's tempers emerge as a theme in, se in several interviews. But Hillary's had much more sustained velocity for a longer period of time, according to the former White House Chief of Staff, Leon Panetta. She just let everyone have it. In another incident, he recalled an aide telling him, the first lady just tore everyone a new blank hole. Quote, the president could be a screamer too, but he was the kind who would scream, and then within 10 seconds he was back, hey, how you doing? And he put an arm around you. Joan Baggett, who served as assistant to the president for political affairs, said people didn't feel comfortable pushing back on the first lady, even when she was wrong. She would blow up over something that she misinterpreted. Again, you can't take her on. That's not my boss. You can't take on the first lady. I remember one time in one meeting uh, where she was blowing up about Bill Clinton's staff and how we were all incompetent. And he was having to be the mechanic and drive the car and do everything that we weren't capable of anything. Braggart added that Clinton would chew out staffers in front of their colleagues, which made things especially awkward. So there you go. So there's H.W. and Reagan, very different than the Clintons. And old Joe is in the tradition of the Clintons, certainly. So that's the Axios article, Old Yeller, Biden's Private Fury. And here's what they said. Behind closed doors, Biden had, has such a quick trigger temper that some aides try to avoid meeting alone with them. Some take a colleague almost as a shield against a solo blast. The president's admonitions include, GD it, how the blank don't you know this? Don't blanking BS me. Get the blank out of here. According to current and former Biden aides who have witnessed and been on the receiving end of such outbursts. But I thought he was a nice old grandpa. I thought he loved ice cream. I thought he was a nice guy. 
That was the whole thing. We don't want meanie Trump. Trump is mean. Never seen Trump in an anger outburst. But he was the mean guy. Mean old racist Trump. So we got to vote for the nice old man. We got to vote for grandpa. Look how sweet and kind he is. Look at him. Look at the ice cream cone. He's like a little kid. Hard to say if this temper is more uh, as a sign of his becoming senile or if that's just who he's always been. That's just not hard to say at all. He's always been mean. And I think it's also a part of him being senile. I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure that's a sign of Alzheimer's too, right? Alzheimer's and, and just getting very old. You get more of a hair trigger temper. But he's also been a jerk always too. Uh, there was a Biden aide, a former Biden aide and, and campaign guy. He was chief of staff to the other senator from Delaware. And in 2012, he wrote a book about D.C. And he said Biden was an egomaniacal autocrat determined to manage his staff through fear. That's back when he was a senator. And you saw what a jerk he was during the Clarence Thomas hearings. The Clarence Thomas autobiography talks about how Joe Biden, uh, behind the scenes, said, oh, Clarence, hey, this is going to be a piece of cake. In and out. We're going to be in and out of here. It's going to be great. Uh, it's going to be a fun time. We're going to have a lot of fun, and, and it'll be great. And then he goes out there and just comes out with all this total, these lies and this nonsense. And that's uh, Clarence Thomas talks about just what a, just what a liar <laughs> Joe Biden is. It always has been. Okay, so here's the question for you. Do you think the media is turning on Joe Biden in order to kick him out of the campaign to put someone else in? And it could be a Gavin Newsom. I don't know. I don't know what the next step is exactly. I think it's Gavin Newsom, but it could be someone else. We were talking to Dan Gaynor yesterday. And I brought this up to him, and he said, yeah, but at this time in years past, uh, Trump was at 1%. And uh, he gave another example of someone, I think maybe Clinton. Bill Clinton was at 1%. So there still could be anyone else that pops up from the Democratic Party. But they got to get rid of Joe first. You can't, you got to clear the way of the the president who's running for re-election if you want anyone else to have a shot. And if you don't want RFK Jr. to have a shot, which they also don't want. So they got to get rid of Biden. I think... This is all part of a turn against Joe Biden. I think that's what the, and we talked about this yesterday, but I want to give you a chance to, to sound off here. I, I think that's what the whole cocaine story is all about. I think that this part of leaking things, leaking embarrassing things about Joe Biden and his family, not to destroy him, but just enough. And I think they're slowly turning up uh, the, the heat there, right? It's a slow, they want to do the least that is necessary in order for Joe Biden to walk off because they don't want to damage the Democratic brand, right? They, they, can't, they can't come out with the, the cluster bomb of attack and say, oh, this guy is a senile lunatic because then people will say, well, hold on. First of all, he's still got a while left in office. That's a problem. Also, uh, we told you he was in the election and you said everything was fine. So like, what, how was the last couple? So they can't come out too hard because that would hurt the democratic party. But if they come out with just a slightly worse thing, almost as like shots across the bow to Joe Biden and his family that eventually they'll say, all right, all right, all right, all right. I tap, I tap out. We're done. We'll step aside with dignity and grace. And as soon as he does, right, as soon as he's like, you know what? It's probably, it's time to pass the torch. Then the media will go right back to, oh, you've been amazing, Joe. 
Oh, you're just wonderful. What a guy. He loves ice cream. You know that? Do you know how much he loves it? Oh, he has ice cream every day. He's a great guy. I think that's the play. So, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's leak this story about, about uh, cocaine in the White House. You know, just kind of talk about Hunter a little bit here. Doesn't look good. If you weren't here yesterday, my argument was that I'm sure the Secret Service finds all sorts of things in the White House. I'm sure all sorts of things are going on that they see that they don't tell us about. So why'd they tell us about that? Why did we find out about it? That's the real story. Not that it happened, but that we found out about it. Same thing here. This isn't new that Joe Biden yells at his staff. Again, that, that article was written, in, the book was written in 2012 talking about how he's a monster behind the scenes. So 10 years later, now we get articles written about it? Seems weird. Why is all this behind the scenes bad stuff coming out in front of the scenes now? And I think they're trying to get him out of the race. Back in 2020, Joe Biden was Uncle Joe, this lovable, soft, cuddly uncle. And now he's a raging lunatic monster. There's <laughs> something going on from the same media. So I think it's going to be fun to see how the devil. Do you agree or not? I'll tell you this. Uh, I was talking to Alex yesterday. Alex Marlowe, do you know him? Editor-in-chief of Breitbart.com, former host of this very show right here. I was talking to Alex yesterday. I was talking about this. And he's like, no. <laughs> like, what? I'm pretty sure that's it. And he's like, no, I don't think. So his argument is, if I can characterize it fairly, he says that none, neither of these stories are any crushing blow. The cocaine story and the temper. Let's just focus on those two. Because I got more here in a second. But cocaine and then and, and the temper. He's like, none of those are crushing blows. He thinks the yelling is even good. Like, like makes him look good. It humanizes him. It shows he cares. Uh, it shows that he's not uh, this, this senile man who is in the background being uh, like pushed around or uh, like a puppet like a meaningless puppet, like he's actually in the fight. He cares about what's going on. He's passionate about what go, what's going on. So Alex thinks that this story makes him look good. And I, I think Alex's argument is that the media is not trying to push him out, but is throwing out a couple bad stuff, like, like a couple jabs. No, no, no uppercuts, no, no crushing blows, just a couple jabs here and there. Just so that the media can say, hey, we're fair. Oh, no, no, we're, we're, we're in the game. Like, we're, it's all, you know, we're, we're, we're balanced. We're fair and balanced. We're not all in. You know, we're not, we're, we're not, we're not, we're not sycophants for Joe. And here's a couple of stories we've run against him, right? But they're just a couple little blows, a couple little, little jabs, and that's it. So that's Alex's take. I disagree. I think they're slowly escalating. To just just do it, and I, I agree that these aren't crushing blows either, but I think it's it's jab jab punch, right? So I, th I think we're seeing a couple jabs, hoping he falls, but they're ready for the punch when necessary. to the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. I'm Mike Slater. So in that opening segment, we touched a little bit on the cluster bombs. And I was talking to our producer, Bill, yesterday 
And I said, Bill, I need a guy who knows cluster bombs. <laughs> so I don't want someone who writes about cluster bombs. I want someone who has seen and touched a cluster bomb, maybe even launched a cluster bomb. <laughs> I want someone who knows what they're talking about. Uh, so indeed, here is Brigadier General retired Blaine Holt, U.S. Air Force, former NATO deputy commander. Fantastic insight and analysis. Enjoy. Mr. Holt, how are you, sir? I am doing great. It's great to be with you, Mike. Wonderful to talk to you and, and also co-founder of Restore Liberty. Um, all right. Well, listen, you're the expert. What is the problem or what are the problems of cluster bombs that we are apparently sending to Ukraine? Yeah, so cluster bombs uh, are a rather nasty munition that over time have just proven to be very lethal uh, even after the conflict is over. Uh, you have civilians that will come along. Now, in the context of Ukraine, we've got a battlefield that's hundreds of miles long with millions of mines all over it. So when we talk about cluster bombs being used in that area against legal military targets, I'm not sure that that, you know, I, I would be more interested in what's the, what are we trying to achieve with that? The two bigger concerns here with the cluster bombs are many of the European nations are opposed to that. And we may see that play out here at the NATO summit where they're going to push back mightily. But the number one problem I see about what happened with this cluster bomb thing uh, was the admission uh, from the president that he believes uh, uh, we're out of munitions or our munition stocks are so depleted that we're down to giving them cluster bombs. I would assure Americans that we're, we're, we have our readiness stocks, but, but that's not a thing you want to transmit to our adversaries or our enemies, rather, around the world. Yeah, and that's, um, that's as you know, Mike, it's a very dangerous world. Yes. He said um, uh, that Ukraine is running out of ammunition. And you're like, well, OK, I guess. Uh, and that the United States is running low on the 155 millimeter artillery shells to resupply the Ukrainian forces. And therefore, this is just we're doing this for a transition period while we can, I guess, what, make more bombs. So is that what he's like? He, like, is it I mean, like we are running out like, like America's running out of. And what's a 155 millimeter artillery shell? What is that? Yeah. So he. That's what he was getting at was uh, we're depleting ourselves of our own ammunition and we don't have enough to resupply them. That's that's not a good thing to say on the world stage. You, you don't need to be transmitting that. The, the 155 millimeter shell is the predominant piece of ammunition that gets fired out of all these cannons that we have sent there. The triple seven howitzer uh, there. The, the, the Ukrainian burn rate on these things is about 7,000 a day. What? So, uh, and, oh, oh, it's, it's a hellscape. Mike, it's a hellscape. And, and so the, when you don't have air power in a war like this or close air support in a counteroffensive like this, you are going to burn through that type of ammunition. The, the Russians are firing back even more, even more than that. With 7,000 a day? Yes. Four, four to seven thousand a day on any given day. Are, where are they? Are where are they landing? Well, it's this no man's land uh, uh, line from Kherson down near Odessa on the coastline, all the way up in that crescent up to Kharkiv. This is where the Russian fortifications and defense lines are, and it's it's it, it's you know it's it's no place you want to be. It's it's Whoa. traps for tanks, heavily entrenched uh, positions, mines, millions of them. And this is where the Ukrainians are probing for any kind of weakness to uh, punch through. Wow. Okay. So uh, to go back to something you said about the, the cluster bombs. Um, so so is, your, is the argument that, yes, uh, sometimes these little bomblets that, that come out of the, the cluster bomb, uh, they may not explode. But we plan on dropping them or they plan on dropping them in such locations that it's already such a gong show, like whatever. 
it, like, you know, as opposed to dropping them in, in, in more civilian areas where it would be a problem later. Is that the argument? Yeah, the argument – well, I mean, so let's say post-conflict, uh, this entire place where this battle was being waged is going to be nothing but a demining exercise. The cluster bombs will be a part of that. Russians okay. have used the cluster bombs. Uh, but but the, the thing is, is it's not palatable to most nations to be employing cluster bombs. You would have hoped that we would have been in consultation with our allies rather than seeing – their pushback play out yes. on the papers. That yeah, that, good. that does not bode well going into a summit where you need the entire alliance with you. Yeah, it's on the England and Spain seem to be the two countries that are uh, coming out most against it yeah. publicly, although I'm sure others too. Uh, you speak of that, uh, that uh, summit. When and, and what is that exactly, as we're hearing more rumblings of should Ukraine even be joining NATO right now? Right, so they're meeting now. Uh, the president is about to make unscheduled uh, remarks. This is a historic summit. Uh, you know, I've planned a lot of these in my career um they're usually very scripted very dry and then they end in a communique well this one's going on in lithuania right now and where the united states is going to be seeking is to keep the alliance together and unified a lot of deals were cut last night looks like sweden's coming into the alliance uh, the turkish have dropped their uh, pushback on that and then there's this swirling thing about ukrainian membership um, that Ukraine is not ready for membership in NATO, and you certainly aren't going to take a country that's actively engaged in a war and give them the ability to pull the rest of NATO in with you. Uh, but NATO unity uh, is going to be tested mightily today and wow. tomorrow. No way. You can't, as I know, compared to you, um, to, to, to say that Ukraine is now in NATO and then five minutes later have a bomb dropped in it and then be like, oh, well, now we're all the war. But that seems unwise. Are there any – and even Joe Biden publicly, at least what I saw a couple of days ago, is like, ah, now is not a good time. Are there other countries who think it is a good time? Uh, yeah, there, there are quite a few countries. Uh, Rishi Sunak was like, well, we got to get them into NATO as soon as humanly possible. Whoa. Like, no, no, that's not – and then we have people here on both sides of the aisle. You had Lindsey Graham just standing up outright saying, we got to fast-track this NATO thing. Um, well, the Russians are watching this too, and uh, – and, and what we don't need to see is an expansion of a war without any diplomacy whatsoever. State Department has not been engaged in off-ramps. In fact, we're looking at informal groups led by Richard Haas, the former president of CFR. He is actively engaging behind the scenes with the Russians, responsibly trying to see if they can't find some sort of plan that could go forward to off-ramp this war. You know, Russia's still very much a nuclear power, and as much as we have disdain for what they have been doing and, and, and we support the Ukrainian people, um, it doesn't mean you want to get into an escalatory spiral with uh, the world's number one nuclear weapon armed uh, nation. No. It doesn't feel like uh, there's, there's much discussion of off-ramps. Now, I, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes and all, but uh, based on your expertise, do you, are you seeing signs that there are even attempts to off-ramp this thing or no? I am. I actually am. The, the, across okay. Europe, you're watching these citizens of all of the countries of Europe that have paid mightily with economics. The sanctions have arguably hurt them almost more than the Russians have, and uh, they've had enough. And, and okay. we're watching all of this money, all of these weapon stocks get drawn down, and the, the world's not getting any more peaceful. We've, we've got to be concerned about China. We've got to be concerned about what Iran's doing in the Middle East. And what we need right now is a strong alliance that's strongly uh, ready to deter conflict in other parts of the world. So, yes, there are 
what I would call the adults in the room, uh, working actively to try to find a way to get this thing to some other place than where it is right now. That's encouraging. So let's back it up a little bit. So uh, just like when COVID started, uh, I became a world-renowned epidemiologist. I don't know if you know that. Uh, Yes, you did. (laughs) We all did. We all did, right? Um, So when this war kicked off 500, 500 days ago, or at least this element of it, um, I became just a NATO expert, just probably greater than you even, perhaps. Uh, and and my, my, what I learned was that talk of Ukraine even potentially joining NATO is what upset Russia. Right? Like You're getting yes. too close to us, Russia said, uh, with your NATO alliances, and we want a buffer that is Ukraine, and, and there's, even too, there's too much talk and we don't like it. So if that is true, right. and I want to ask you if you find that to be somewhat accurate, isn't wouldn't that also be true with Sweden joining? Uh, I, don't, I don't think we realize that Finland and Russia have quite a history of war, indeed, uh, and a huge border. Sweden doesn't have a border with Russia, but Norway does, oddly. Uh, so it, would Russia be equally upset with Sweden joining, or no? They are not as upset because it's a, it's, it's a loss that they have incurred as a result of this war. So hmm. when, when Russia invaded... On, and you're quite correct in your NATO expertise in, yeah. on the basis of, of uh, uh, the, the Russian gripe was blown accords after blown accords, meaning uh, they felt that uh, agreements that had been reached in Minsk were not honored and they were not going to tolerate Ukraine coming into NATO. Um, at the same time, as a result of their invasion, NATO closed ranks and then Russia and Sweden evaluated their own security and said, well, we don't really care what you think. We're coming into the alliance. Mm. And so Russia, this is a loss for Russia. They, we are bringing on two formidable militaries in Sweden and Finland. Finland's the only country to have defeated Russia militarily uh, uh, in the last century. And, um, and that, is, that is a setback for Russia. They have inherited 830 miles of more NATO border right on, their, on theirs. Uh, oh, wait, wait. Fin- now, Finland joined too. I, I, I missed something. Finland joined too. Or have they oh, always yes, been? Finland's in. They're confirmed now. When did that happen? Uh, that was months ago. They they had a quicker path to ratification. So Whoa. they're going to be uh, officially affirmed into the alliance today. And then Erdogan dropped all of the Turkish uh, president, dropped all of his uh, pushback on Sweden joining the alliance. This now clears them in. There will be a vote. And then the Turkish parliament in a couple of months will ratify that. I estimate the deal making hovers around some sort of deal to bring Turkey into the EU uh, again, that will pull Turkey further away from Russia. Russia probably is going to work that diplomatically behind the scenes wow, as well. There's that, a lot going on. Yeah, that Finland loss for them, as I'm just playing a game of risk in my head, that's a huge, that seems like a huge loss. Turkey, I imagine, would be one too. But every time I hear like a, a loss for, or as, as we push further away or move further away from Russia or push Russia further away, uh, I also, and I celebrate that, like, yay, I also see them then being pushed further closer to China. Or further to oh, other yeah. Middle Eastern allies, which could be bad. Well, you, you just hit it right on the head. So what's happening with China, Iran, Russia, North Korea, they're all part of this nucleus of a rising what, what we would call the BRICS plus countries, mm-hmm. uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and all the other nations they're trying to galvanize across the world against the West, uh, and their big goal is to go to a gold-backed multinational currency yep. to dis, to get rid of the U.S. dollar as the primary mode of transaction. That's, that's the upper limits of, the, of this global war on, on a Cold War scale. And uh, Russia uh, is definitely committed itself to its relationship with China. 
I'm not sure, you know, historically, no Russian-Chinese marriage has ever lasted. This one probably won't either. Hmm. Uh, but that's where we find ourselves on the world board today. Interesting. Okay, so we got this NATO summit happening right now. Uh, my last question is just what would you be looking for uh, that would be good or bad as we uh, look what's happening there in Lithuania? Yeah, so NATO needs to come out of this thing united, not showing so much of its fissures. Uh, and then they absolutely, the number one thing is they've got to find common ground on what an off-ramp uh, for this war might look like. And with Zelensky there, they, the, the heads of state need to get into rooms and they need to sit down and talk with where the puts and the takes are on, on getting closure to this conflict. It's, it's what our world needs It's from a security aspect. Uh, escalation at this point uh, could be a horrific endeavor. And, and like I said, the, the, globally, the world is not getting more peaceful. It's actually getting more dangerous. Yeah. Uh, great insight. Brigadier General retired Blaine Holt, Air Force and former NATO deputy commander and now co-founder of Restore Liberty. And you can find them on the Twitter at, at Restore Liberty. Uh, Mr. Holt, wonderful, sir. Thank you for your insight. Thank you, Mike. Great to be with you today. Tremendous. Yes, you too. Let's do it again. Um, gosh, I love talking to people who know stuff. I'm American made. Right, thanks for listening to the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. On tomorrow's show, we're going to talk about the movie Sound of Freedom. Have you seen it? It's about human trafficking and sex trafficking and like the number one movie in the country. <laughs> like, what? How did, how did a movie made by 40, with $14 million make $40 million in a week? What is happening? What does this mean? And what really is going on in this realm? Why do people care? It's a, it's a pretty dark thing to talk about and think about. But people are choosing to watch this movie over Indiana Jones, like a summer feel-good blockbuster. What does that mean, too? What's going on there? Lots to talk about here. So we're going to talk with my good friend Jocko Bullions, who runs a, uh, other than having an awesome name, uh, runs a uh, ministry with uh, rescuing kids who are trafficked. Uh, so we'll get some insight from him. And take your phone call if you've seen the movie as well. That's on tomorrow's show. Don't worry.